Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello folks, welcome to Wargaming Month here on The Napoleon Assist. A very quick reminder, smack the like button, remember to subscribe so you can find your way back, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll take you a few seconds of your time. It'll make a massive difference to me and my ability to reach a wider audience with the the details of the work of my fantastic guests. If you are willing to go just a tiny bit further and dig into your own pocket, and believe me, I completely understand if you're not up for that, you can do so in two ways. You can become a regular supporter via Patreon, different perks in each tier. Check the link in the description for more details on that. Or if a regular subscription isn't your thing, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the episode description. Whatever support you're able to offer, as you know, I am massively grateful and enjoy the show. And welcome to the Napoleon Assist and another instalment of Wargaming Month. We've been looking at lots of different genres over recent weeks. We've looked at the digital formats over on the YouTube channel, where I've been chatting to Josh Proven about Napoleon Total War and the way in which that tries to recreate the, the, the kind of the feel, if you like, of the period. For more on that, head over to the Napoleon Assist YouTube channel, where there are still uh, episodes going live every week as we work through a series on that. We've looked at the, uh, the, the nature of Napoleonic miniatures. We've looked at Wargaming Waterloo. Today, we're going to look at another key genre. This time, we're going with Napoleonic board games. To help me unpick this deep and kind of varied field in terms of what it hopes to offer to viewers and the different um, types of games that are out there, I am joined by Professor Ed Koss. Ed is a regular on the Napoleon Assist by now. You'll have heard me wax lyrical in the past about his great book, All for the King Shilling, which remains one of the premier studies of the Napoleonic infantryman. Um, Ed has also worked on a, a great piece of work looking at Napoleon and his mental state during this period. 
again, for more on that, go and listen to previous podcasts in the back catalogue. But today we are going to be looking at Napoleonic board gaming, which is something that Ed knows his stuff about because he's been doing this for, I forget how many years it was exactly, he told me, but it surprised me. No, 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 it can't be 40, Ed, you're not that old. Um, Ed, welcome back. It's only been a few weeks, actually, because you were on the, the greatest uh, Wargaming episode. How are you doing? Excellent. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to be back. Uh, I don't think I will be able to provide the level of levity and creative talk that we had the last time with, with Josh uh, and uh, Conrad, a.k.a. Bullock and Kitty Litter. I don't think I can uh, match that. They, it was wonderful to be on with them and you and I'm glad to be back. Let's start with the personal element of all of this then, because for each of my guests this month, I, I wanted to start here because everyone has their own route in. So what was your journey into wargaming? I stumbled across, I was about 19 years old, I stumbled across a game called Panzer Blitz, which was Germans and Russia in World War II. Uh, I remember this day, to this day, trying to uh, discern 3D terrain elements on a 2D map. And that was the biggest challenge in sorting through rules and trying to play it. And a next door neighbor guided me to a wonderful, wonderful guy up the road. He was a uh, fireman. And this gentleman taught me more about wargaming, about how to analyze a map, analyze force structure, analyze uh, operational and tactical nuances, many things that I later learned in the army to have real credence. But he taught me this by crushing my soul week after week after week. But I didn't mind because, which for me, I'm pretty competitive, but I didn't mind because Pat Nisley really knew what he was doing. So that was about the time, by the time I finished that apprenticeship, I had uh, grown quite a bit gaming wise, but I also realized because of my love of history, this was a lens, this was an opening to uh, understanding history better. So I would play whatever game we were playing that week and then run off and find as many books as I could about it. Because even at 2021, when I was finishing my bachelor's, I realized these are models. Every game was a model. And then it became like a challenge. Can you find historical things to support how that model represents that campaign, that battle? Or do you find historical things that contradict how that model works? And that became a really intriguing and fun way to immerse myself because I realized I was learning on both ends. I mean, the army has a, a methodology that I discovered accidentally, but they formally, not, they informally call it find, fix, flank, and finish, all right? And I found those tactical and operational nuances by playing through games. And most of us my age started with World War II games that we branched out, in my case, to Napoleonic games. So yeah, I have been doing this for four years. Uh, each game 
was a journey. It was fun because it drove me to the library. And I couldn't get, it wasn't like I wanted to be there. It's because I love to be there. And reading the books and then analyzing, and then you'd have people when you're playing, when things would go against them. And they would, they would complain about, oh, that's just lucky and all that. And then you'd quote a little bit of Clausewitz back to him with friction, you know, the, the element of chance in the battlefield. And they would kind of look at you stony face because they wanted to attribute their lack of success to pure luck. And I said, I have made 17 attacks on you in the last four turns. Statistically, some of those are not going to go in your favor. But the mere fact that you've allowed me to do 17 attacks tells me you're reacting in the army terms. I've seized the initiative. So I start learning about historical methodologies. And then each period was such a revelation of the, the broken, not linear, but kind of broken evolution of tactics, which we often... I think erroneously represent everything from Gustavus to Frederick and Napoleon as if everything that was learned in a previous period is automatically embraced and used in the next period. And it's not true. And war games allowed me to see the broken pathway. Plus they were fun, social things with my friends. And I, I was able to find a crowd who oddly enough in the middle of, in the Midwest, the United States, love Napoleonic stuff as much as I did. And Deb and I just had a conversation this morning about that. Was it the grandeur? Unfortunately, sometimes Napoleonic stuff is, it kind of can lean into the glory of war, which I obviously object to. But when you're 20 years old and you're looking at the uniforms, the counters, you, you have an imagination of what it represents. And I don't know, it was just, that progressed into graduate school where the, where the analysis got really serious. And I had friends who wargamed me through graduate school, finding games from on Gustavus Adolphus and then later Frederick and the seven years. We just wargamed and we would sit down and they asked me, how accurate is that? What, or what do you not ask them? What are your impressions? And then I'd go screwing off. I know it's a long answer, but it's been 40 years of revelation of allowing a hobby, a game to guide my understanding of history. And if ever, listeners, you were wondering why I decided after my patrons, uh, well, why I gave my uh, patrons the opportunity to vote for Wargaming Month as the focus for this month, there is your answer. The way in which these games have the ability to perhaps offer a lens to understand the period, but certainly act as a means of inspiring people to learn more about the period is one of the things that I was hoping would drop out of the discussions over the course of this month. And I, you've encapsulated that brilliantly. Thank you, Ed. Shall we start with the, the field as it were, you know, kind of survey what's out there when it comes to the Napoleonic board games. Give us a sense of the different styles that are available perhaps because the hex system is one thing, Others are a bit more free flowing because um, you, you get uh, some varieties as well, don't you, in terms of some being a bit more tactically focused, others are a bit more strategic. 
All I could say on, in response to that question is, oh my God, I, on a quick look on just using Napoleon as the search word on BoardGameGeek, there are 400 war games. That doesn't include the ones like the Battle of Moscow, the Battle of Waterloo. They're not even listed here, 400, and they run, go ahead, sir. I, I might as well have just asked you to just do a history of everything ever. That, that would probably have been simpler, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, they go back into the six, from the 60s, which were, and all, there's so many failings with war games. And we talked about in the last episode of the omniscience you get. Uh, and yet they're, very the variation in which the designers try to give you that particular battle. So you, you you realize that there are strategic Napoleonic war games with one 24 by 36 map of Europe, where each hex is hex is like several hundred kilometers. And there's one counter sitting in there that represents X. And so you've got strategic games, you've got operational games which are obviously slightly smaller scale napoleonic stuff tends to lend itself towards the tactical because that's where i think the the nexus of people's imaginations and having seen the rod steiger waterloo movie when they were young or whatever come cross pathways with designers wanting to sell games because if you want to sell these things you have to pick popular topics and present them in colorful ways. Is there also an element of the nature of Napoleon that plays into that, though? That, you know, this was a guy who, yes, he could get his armies to a battlefield incredibly effectively. That was kind of part of the, the beauty of the core system. And yet, where did he excel? He excelled in being able to turn the tide of a battle through tactical initiative you know you can say well part of that is strategy well yes of course it is but in terms of the flair inverted commas and i heavily emphasize you know inverted commas for the flair of the period there's the sense that napoleon as an individual lends himself to that certainly to me whereas if you think in terms of the strategic there are strategic blunders out there for napoleon aren't there you know let's just pause for a second and consider the peninsula war for one thing the invasion of Russia for a second. So it, do you think that plays into it? Absolutely. Because as you and I have discussed in the past, there is a tendency amongst just people in general to mythologize history, to, to in many ways glorify certain events or some a lot of confirmation bias. Nobody plays these games that I ever played with who don't want to vicariously be Napoleon. And he, he works on the tactical level. If you know what you're doing and you do the stuff that David Chandler describes brilliantly in his book, The Campaigns of Napoleon, and you sit down and you do that, try to do a maneuver sur le derriere, and he refuses his flank and leaves you to that, that 
that point to channel it, the master rupture point right there, and you pound through it, people are putting their little bike horns on and doing the happy dance because they have personified a moment that connects all their understanding of history, their fun of war game. Now, it's not easy to do. That's one of the things you discover. And that's the thing I like to say up front is, is, is there are 400 war games, there are 400 different or a thousand different approaches as a player to Napoleonic game. I tend to be, as I think you are, totally immersed in the action, you know, we're academics. I have a lot of friends who love Napoleon and have read a book in decades on him and they want to have fun. They want to live that. They want to, now do they know the, the stuff in the granular detail that I want to discover? They don't necessarily want to discover. They want to play a game and move troops around and bring the guard in. And, and you can do this on, the, again, as we discussed last episode, the granular alignment of historical things that get you historical outcomes is what resonates with me as a good game. They just want the historical outcomes, many of my friends, and they are willing to play and learn, and they know enough about the guard and combined arms, and they like to discover that as they play. And so all these games from strategic all the way down, I think are the interesting thing about the Napoleonic gaming like World War II is its scale is so, you can do so much with the scale and it depends on your viewpoint. For me, the more abstract you get, especially like with the strategic thing and one generic counter with a number one on it or three on it, that to me is too far removed from anything that relates in history so when it gets abstract, I begin to wonder about its, what's it modeling? And you end up with lots of results that historically could never happen. But many of my friends are just happy legitimately with sitting down at the table with friends and playing Napoleon and talking about the movie or we see if anybody's seen the able glance multiple hour, you know, masterpiece, which I made Deb watch the other day. <laughs> and they just, they just, uh, they're just drawn to it. I don't have many folks who, uh, who, who object to exploring the Napoleonic myth or legend or persona. I think he's, hugely charismatic until you really get to know him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, neither of us have exactly hidden our light under a bushel when it comes to our views on Napoleon, have we? Um, why, why the appeal for board war games, do you think? I mean, if there are 400 board games dedicated to the Napoleonic, just just to Napoleon, you know, that mentioned Napoleon in the title, forget searching for battles and, and things like that. I think we can say that there probably aren't 400 plus varieties of model-based games. So why do you think the board game has done 
so well in this kind of niche because that number is staggering. I mean, yes, okay, you can turn around and say, well, but there are many versions of Monopoly. Well, yeah, but they're not variations on the game. They're just variations in a layout. So this is, this is something quite, you, I, I hesitate to say unique. I'm not a historian of board games, but this feels quite surprising and quite odd. Why do you, why do you think it's the case? I want to preface that question by noting that one of the great things you discover as you explore, because this is also, the, for me, the holy grail. I keep looking for, until I found that Waterloo 1815 thing, I kept looking for the best board game model that really resonated. Uh, the journey through all these different games and seeing how the designer approaches, it's, it's always like popping a, a Christmas present and seeing how they view things. So. I'm saying there's so many disparate approaches with, with varying degrees of historical substantiation behind them that they exist in so much because people I think are still searching. I he compels people. There are so many variations on a theme out there that and they sell which is a, a big thing to remember you you put warren let's say you put a game that's a global look at uh, warfare warren society people aren't going to buy it even if it's a crackerjack representation of logistics political military you know if you put warren society napoleon in yeah, now they're going to buy it. And uh, as I said, I have so many friends who don't have necessarily an academic, but do have a, a real liking of this era. And I've, I've, I've played 400 of them. I've played a ton of them looking for the Holy Grail. And most of them, in my viewpoint, are, are wanting in some way. And that's not a criticism. It's just that it takes a certain amount of skill and if you and hubris almost to think you can capture warfare on any scale and the horrors which are never talked about uh, and try to do that with little pieces of cardboard on a two-dimensional map. That's you know it's obviously got its basis in the Kriegspiel, the Prussian the war game that starts all this, but there's, there's so much to be offered. And I think Napoleon speaks the, the glory, the eagle. And I, uh, I would guess that I could probably find another 50, at least 50 to 100 games about Napoleon that don't have Napoleon in the title. Because all you have to say is Austerlitz and, and, or Borodino. I should have looked up. I had it one time, but I forgot the numbers of of just board games on Waterloo. And the, uh, the opportunity is there for so many people and so many approaches that I think the itch hasn't been scratched yet. It's fascinating. I don't suppose you've got any uh, indication of numbers over time, do you? 
don't worry if you haven't, but I'm just curious about whether or not this is something that sort of faded off because I, I had a very uh, curious conversation once with a colleague who I think I've relayed this uh, before on, on this podcast who turned around to me and asked and, and was genuine in their question. They were trying to come at it from a good place and give me sort of careers advice, but said to me, so why are you studying the Napoleonic Wars? Nobody's talking about Napoleon anymore, which I would beg to respectfully differ with. Um, Ed nods to himself quietly and, and thoughtfully, um, but I, I would suggest that actually people are still talking about Napoleon in and the Napoleonic era in a myriad of different ways. But do you have any kind of sense of a loss of interest in um, this form of engagement with the period? No, not at all, because I have the dates of them in front of me. And I, as you were asking the question, I think, and this is just conjecture, but the war gaming itself ebbs and flows. Uh, it, it started, it, it, it rose in the eight, 1980s, dipped a little bit in the 90s. Some of us thought it was the, it was going to be the death of war gaming because computer games came out and a lot of people abandoned the, the cardboard interpretation. But coming to 2000s and now in some ways, I think we're in a golden age of war gaming because we have so many more publishers. There used to be just like two or three. Now we have a myriad of publishers who are getting high quality contents and maps and there's one thing about war gamers, maps count. They learn how to read maps and the maps really matter. So I'm looking at just a quick perusal, 2020, 2020, 2021, 2016, the demise of Napoleonic board gaming. I, I bet if we would have this conversation in five years, there'll probably be 600 games with Napoleon's name in them. I mean, there is a basic point that we've just had the bicentenaries of, well, in fact, for the last uh, 30 odd years, we've been looking at the bicentenary of this period. And so interest has actually been really quite high as we kind of pause and reconsider and fresh research has been done. and. The hope, of course, is that that will be a trend that continues. You know, we will have, having looked at this period, developed knowledge to a point where actually people can build upon it. So fingers crossed that that particular uh, prophecy from my well-meaning colleague was just misplaced. Let's well, talk I, about... If I might add, before you move on, I've had the, the joy of introducing, obviously, Napoleon to Commander General Staff Colleges to these, these fabulous students. We didn't know that much about him. And then having some, thanks to, and I mentioned the last time that our, our, our tactics instructor who ran these sims for the students, Chris Carnes, uh, doing side games with introducing students to board games having to do with this period. Because many of them, they're on temporary duty status. They're far away from home. They got nothing to do on a weekend or something. And Chris was very aware of that. So sometimes after classes, sometimes on a weekend, we would invite them over and introduce them. And I'm still playing 
uh, war games with one of them. Jesus, that's 10 years ago. And we've become, and he's just, he's a, he's a brilliant guy, a former military intelligence officer. The point being that these war games were a conduit for students who know, knew very little about the period to reading about the period and then playing a game about, it's a game. It's, 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 it's just the thing, but did it, it act as a catalyst for them wanting to go. And I had a, one, of a, one of my students said that she was at a bookstore and her husband who liked history, but she was notoriously anti-history because of her experiences. And we both know that history can be so poorly taught that it, it drives really bright people to despising it. And she was just crackerjack gal. And she turned in the class. She just went like, the light went on and she was so into things. And I mentioned her last time, she was one of the folks in that hammer and the anvil thing that she did. But she said, my husband goes, what are you doing? She was buying two books on Napoleon at the bookstore. And I'm going, touchdown. You know, that's, that's, that's victory where you introduce a topic, an idea, give them background, have them do readings, and then they play a war game. And, and then they're off and they're buying it for independent reading and analysis. That's what, that's what these things can do if they're handled right, if, if you know how to handle the people and build them up. Because if you pop open a box and it's got 80 pages of rules and all this fiddly stuff, and it's interesting because being a fiddly, one of the drawbacks of Napoleonic gaming is there's a lot of little pieces that tend to be in. Charles Esdale and I just had a conversation because he disagreed with my Waterloo 1815 assessment is the best because unlike the one I got you, Josh, he got the second edition. So instead of having those meaty wooden blocks to move around, which gives you some uh, you know, small motor control of the pieces, he got the second edition, which were all flat pieces of cardboard. And trying to get your fingers in to move a column and to move this piece of artillery and all that, he said it was just too fiddly. So he and I are having a great debate on the efficacy of that particular model. But I didn't mean to interrupt. It's just the idea that you could have a game inspire people along with the academic part, but you inspire people to do their own independent research and make their own assessments. And they hear my assessments of Napoleon at times and the evidence. And of course, the whole thing, the psychological profile was all done with five of my former students who were all psychologists. That was a joy because I didn't guide them. I just presented and, and they all became totally fascinated with Napoleon as a troubled but brilliant guy. And they saw things in his behavior. Now I'm going back in preparation for my next paper for Warren uh, Peace Conference looking at coinciding events that precipitated his suicide attempts. And it's just, these are all, all these, the games and the history, all acts as a genesis for an ever growing interest. And so am I behind war gaming? Does it present a viable picture of war? Hell no. 
Okay, it just, it doesn't. But are they a mechanism for driving intellectual inquiry? You bet. See, what you've managed to do there is anticipate my next question, which was to kind of query how they stack up as, as educational tools. So let me take it in a slightly different direction on, on that basis. You mentioned about how these are sanitizations, and I've discussed this with Josh in relation to Napoleon Total War, where actually we were quite pleased that they hadn't done that sort of slightly predictable thing of just piling on the gore, that the gore factor is just not there. Now, that's very different to the experience of what you might get if you play, for example, the, the modern Call of Duty games, where there is actually a gore filter and you can have it turned on or you can have it turned off. If you have it turned off, then what you get is um, some pretty gory um, dismemberments uh, based on where you, you take um, your, your gunfire to the body. Um, so do you think the, I suppose the first question is, can you do anything about the, the sanitization element? Because look, these things are there to entertain. It's quite a unique individual who wants to play a game in order to see some kind of gory representation. But also, does it matter, in your opinion, that the sanitization is an element? Is, is it an advantage? Is it a disadvantage? I'm not really sure where I stand on that, but I'm curious about your thoughts there. My concern at the top of my head is when I play, these games are abstractions of real life events. And if you're willing to, if you're playing and you get yourself into an enfilade situation and somebody fires canister and you lose a quarter of your guys, which would probably be a gross exaggeration, but you wouldn't lose them physically necessarily, but a lot of the guys go down to help their comrades, some cower, but you're gonna lose a significant portion. And all you do is put a marker on the counter or you flip it over to show it was hit. That at least is something sometimes in miniatures. And one of the reasons that board games appeal, I think more than the, the moving of the figures is you don't have to paint the board game pieces. It's not gonna take you. I was so amazed at Conrad and my friend, Mike, who phenomenal, but takes them decades to paint. And then they sculpt terrain and they, they just, it, it's art. But when you're playing with a miniature game, it's, it's, very, it's very visual. And often all you do is take a little pipe cleaner and move it from one figure to the next to represent casualties. Mike has sometimes painted up casualty figures. So if you have a horrible moment on the battlefield, he'll put those out to represent so that when you're done, you have a, again, a visual representation of, of the carnage. Uh, again, my only concern is that we sanitize it so much, it becomes like a version of Stratego. And I would love my friends to understand the ramifications, the human ramifications of what the Prince of Orange does at Waterloo with his orders to his men and they get hit by Cav and they get run down. And uh, Mick Crumplin gave me you know, his wonderful book on uh, medicine in, in this era and that French 
doctor whose name escaped me who did all the artwork that shows the effects of because he was he was there the effects of uh, full round shot the effects of canister the effects of saber cuts i'm not saying you should have that book open next to you because it's pretty gore filled but and thanks for that heads up thing you can you can throw his name in there uh zach's trying to cue me so i look like i know i'm talking about uh but i have those visuals in my mind and to a degree i i want my friends to realize i want us to realize that war is or is about death and carnage. Do you need to represent it on the battlefield? I think there were these games, again, it's, it's about practical cost. If they gave you casualty marker counters, there would just be more markers cluttering up an already cluttered battlefield. Uh, I, back in the day, they tried it. And one of the reasons war games kind of died in the 80s, these, these kind of things, because they went vertical. They would have a counter and then a casualty marker and then a morale marker and then whether they were suppressed. And pretty soon you got six counters straight up and you got a bunch of units next to each other, the inevitability of you spewing stuff and not knowing what's under those counters too really diminished play. But I don't know, I think war games, if it's gonna be a model of something should be, there should be at least a reminder of of uh, of the decimation that is war. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, it's a problem that you can't, it's a circle that you can't square for me. Um, it's, I, I'm with you that in one sense, you know, it would be nice to have just a modicum of an appreciation of the horrors of war so that people can kind of get that, you know, you if you were dealing with real people's lives, this would be a very different concern. But the flip side is that, you know, these games are there to entertain. And, you know, whilst it's all very well for the, the likes of me to turn around and say, well, yes, but can we please remember the human sacrifice? The reason that you're playing a game and not, you know, commanding a, a brigade in your nation's army is because you're not, you, you don't want to do that whole thing of commanding men or, and women these days and, and sending them off on missions that are going to lead to injuries and, and potentially deaths. Um, so it's, it's a tricky one. Um, I think that's fair. It's easy. 
it's easy, it's fun, it's entertainment, it's having your friends over. Uh, do, and you know me how crazy I can get, do they super prep for a, for an encounter, a battle coming up? Unlikely, but they're all competent. And I just use it for how, what works for me. It's, it's a catalyst and they use it for, but it is in the end, a form of mostly entertainment and discovery. We've done everything. This is not particularly on this topic, but wargaming, anything that's got juice, whether it's the American Civil War, uh, World War II, anything that in some ways the horrors of war get diminished and the, the glory gets, it gets uh, escalated. Everybody wants to play those. Everybody wants to try Okinawa once after you play it a couple of times and you realize how many Marines are dying or in how many, the, the total obliteration of the Japanese. Sometimes you don't play a game another time just because you go, I've learned about what I need to on this, but the, I, I don't even know, I didn't look up, but I'm, how many games are out there on Gettysburg? <laughs> uh, everybody looks for the Holy Grail, but I think uh, it is entertainment. And so, if, as I said, if there's 400 war games, there's 400 different reasons people play. Let's talk about biases then. Are there any common themes that you've come across in your experiences? Um, obviously the desire to be Napoleon is something that I've discussed with some of my guests. I guess that's a, a factor. Do you find sort of implausibilities to try and level the odds in, in some cases? Talk us through what your experience is. Let's not say in some cases. Let's say in every case. Because one of the markers, one of the, uh, the metrics for gaming is this playability thing. Uh, does everybody have the same chance? So you'll get escalations of troop quality and things on one end, and the designer will say, well, I did that because I wanted to make this a competitive scenario where I'm of the mind Give me, if you're going to try to quant down the quality of troops, give me that particular scenario with those troops and let me discover things instead of playing. Well, I've played Agincourt several times, right? And Agincourt should be a mess, but it depends on the designer, whether they're pro-French, then the English gets schwacked and then I have to run back and read Kelly DeVries and, and, and all these solid medieval historians that try to go, wait a minute. And then conversely, they make it so that the French can never win because they try. One of the things about a gaming experiment, I think these are all experiments, should be to present to the troops, present the variables right up to where it's kickoff time. And then it should be up to you. If I know that the designer has created a game to give me an outcome, then he's built in, and they all do to some degree, they, they build in a whole array of biases that will prevent me or maybe drive me to try to sort out 
what just happened. My problem with that is it can give people false assessments. They'll play a war game and they'll go, well, geez, uh, the, the Brits should win Waterloo every time. Or given the force structure, you should win Waterloo every time with Napoleon, not realizing the chaos of battle, the, the unknowns, which of course you don't get in a board game because you can see everything. People come away with kind of like cocky impressions. And uh, I've had many discussions because I don't tell people when I go to, my friends take me to these cons and they often put on big games or small game. I don't tell people when I, because nobody has that big an ego when they sit down at the table and go, hi, I'm a Napoleonic historian. You know, you, don't, you wouldn't do that. So during the course of the game, something will transpire this or that. And it's usually to the detriment of the opponent. And they start pontificating based on their having read one book or saw one movie. And they will tell you about the outcome and why this is happening. And one of my favorite phrases used to be, well, if only that were true, because it wasn't. But then they would, they would look at you and it wasn't even ego, they were shocked. And they go, what do you mean? And they said, well, I've played this game like five times and the British always win or the British always lose. And go, well, that's because the game's unbalanced. And so your takeaway, again, is a learning tool. Your takeaway can be imperiled by the fact that look on the back of every war game, you look at every review, it talks about that equal playability. Nobody wants to be, you don't play, I, uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, a totally, you don't play Ishildwana with the Brits and you're just that small, the 24th foot, you should not win that day, all right? But if they jack up the artillery, they give you an awareness, they give you additional forces, it changes the outcome. And then I resent the heck out of the game, which is why I tend to wanna to play miniatures more than board games, because the people who run miniatures just give you the force structure and then by the mirror character of the game, they have to get out of the way and let it play out. Now they can, you have to know the guy who's running the game too. Has he thrown in extra troops? Has he jury rigged morale up or down? Like when I used to run a game, uh, my master's thesis was on the British cavalry. And this is like ages ago when they had like typewriters, okay? And you would get people at the table and they would look at Slade and some of these other cavalry commanders who were not really very good. But in the original game system, on a, like a one to 10 scale, they're rated an eight. And so I rated them a four because it, it gave, and then they would be really bent out of shape because the game system had originally altered the play balance. I shouldn't have said playability is play balance. Uh, and I would have to explain to him, but he was awful. You don't, don't give me a, a Waterloo game where the Prince of Orange gets an eight. But the, so there's subjective 
parts of all these games is just built in. And you just hope whether it's the designer or the guy who runs the game is giving you a fair, a fair deal. And you're not going to get it. You're just not. If whoever decides Waterloo is going to decide on who they think should win. And it's funny, I'm pretty sure that most of those people who sort of have read a book or watched a film and then love to tell you all about the period um, are now coalescing on Facebook and Twitter, doing pretty much exactly the same thing and telling you why your decade or so uh, in the business is just a complete waste because, you know, they spent 10 minutes on Wikipedia and are therefore an expert. Bitter rant aside... <laughs> Let's let's get back to this business. I want to touch on something that we have kind of alluded to before about dice and luck within these games, because there's a, another tension, if you like, here in terms of this isn't a war simulation. It's a game. Um, now, there is arguably an element of luck in war because sometimes that's just how things happen. You know, messages do get delivered or they don't get delivered because of fortuitous or infortuitous circumstances. So, you know, are dice a good way of replicating the uncertainty? Do you think there are alternatives? What, what are your thoughts on that kind of luck, inverted commas, element? First, I'd like to congratulate you for having the most insightful questions these are pretty amazing questions. Uh, it is a debate within the community. I hear a call, it was like a clearing call for many to remove chance from gaming. Uh, and this is just my rant. I think that they're often perpetuated by people who get their heads handed to them in games and, and want to blame chance as the reason. Like the individual I told you, I attacked you 17 times. The chances of you rolling, let's say, your morale is boxcars. You, you can make everything but an 11 or a 12, and you're good. Well, that's three chances in 36. That's one in 12. That's eight and a half percent chance right? If I make you do 17 attacks, chances of you failing about two of those is statistically true. If I do 30 attacks on you with bonuses because I'm hitting you in the flank and I've already reduced you with the use of light troops and artillery and now you're down like 30% on your guys when you've taken these hits and now I hit you, the chances of you breaking are almost a, in a 40% chance at 17 rolls. That's like, that's like almost seven chances you should fail at. Seven times you should fail. And yet they, I've heard so often, well, luck was just against me. Luck had nothing to do with it, if you understand probability. So that's my argument against why luck, but Historically, and then professionally, you must embrace Clausewitz. You have to embrace Clausewitz. I think some of them is the most prescient through personal experience, observations are about the role of chance. 
because some people get fog and friction confused. When he talks about fog, he's talking about real fog. And we, we have uh, made them synonyms, fog and friction. But what he was talking about is real fog. But fog is an element of friction, of unexpected circumstances. And I will tell you that my students, when they got interested, introduced to Clausewitz, because Clausewitz should not be read as a book. He should be, re he should be read on select, find a topic you're interested in, read that two pages, contemplate it, go on, find another part that interests you. You don't read it from left to right. And they've been told to left to right. And it, it's mind numbing, especially since you only completed the first chapter, except when you read it selectively. And I would give them my favorite pages and I would say, go find your favorite pages. And they would come back marveling that their take on Clausewitz was so different now than what they had been told or experienced previously. And the number one focus thing has to do with chance in war because it was synonymous with their experience. Every one of them said, well, the army has doctrine and these folks can quote you doctrine left and right. And they will tell you the, uh, the Mulcahy quote, which we always paraphrase, but no plan survives contact with the enemy. Every one of them will vouchsafe that that's absolutely true. And they'll even remind us the, the, the quote supposedly from the Russians who in the eighties got so perplexed because they said the Americans don't even follow their own doctrine. And that's because when circumstances change, American officers are trained in very much in the, uh, in some ways the old Prussian methodology some people would argue because they don't like that lineage through World War One and Two. but that thing where you, the, the reason you created a war game was to pre present people with situations where they're, Mulcahy did have a book of solutions to those games. People don't realize they weren't open-ended, but they were open-ended because he threw in dice and you move your guys to that bridge and the bridge is out. So now what do you do is based on a roll of a dice, roll a dice, see if the bridge is out, oh, the bridge is out. He, the whole thing, he wanted to see how well you adapt. How well did that individual officer adapt to circumstances on a playing field where nobody's getting shot? And you can sort people out who can think fast, intuitively. And I believe intuitive is just, by that I mean, that you're just processing your own experience at a fast rate. It's not like you're struck by the fates. It's that you're just, you're going, okay, this is what I think should happen. So Clausewitz has to be embraced. And so when you're talking about variations and combat effects, he has, that has to be, embraced and I think it's not embraced enough in games because bridges are always there whatever you need logistically is always there and that doesn't happen so getting to hear from my students how uh, Clausewitz lit them up based on the unexpectedness of warfare and we're talking about everybody from operators you know guys at the tip of the spear to the logisticians, nothing ever works right, nothing. So then it's just about the intellect of the leader at that moment, what does he do or she do? It's, it's really warfare personified across time. So the other problem though, is if designers don't quite understand chance, if chance can, like 
my friend Mike, who's he is, I use his name a lot, but he is he's studied wargaming, he's brilliant on this stuff. He likes two six when he in wargame, he wants two six-sided dice as results dice. Why? Because you get the bell-shaped curve. And most of your results are going to be pretty much in the middle, and you're not going to get these disparate things. He really despises, and he makes a great argument. If you use a 10-sided dice as your randomizer, as your Clausewitzian catalyst. 10-sided dice, every one of those outcomes is the same. So your chances won't fall in the middle. They'll all, you, you get huge explosions or you'll be right there on the, on the enemy's flank and fire your canister and get, roll a one and get no effect. I'm 40 yards away from them firing canister. I can't miss. And so designers sometimes aren't like with the 20 sided dice they use. Well, 20 sided dice are 20 outcomes, 5% each. You don't get the curve, you get disparate outcomes. On those kind of games, if the luck swings too greatly, it then destroys the tactical or operational realities that you're trying to bring into play. And then people get dispirited. And it is part of the things about finding the right war game is it's not for me. I, I'm an educator forever. And I want my friends to come over and experience something that's revelatory to them. I want them to go, wow, uh, look at this. And if I present them a game that they lose interest in, because in their mind's eye picture of what combat was like in this period, these strange outcomes occur, then they don't wanna play again, or they, they kind of lose interest in that day and you can tell. And I don't want them to lose their spirit. I want them to stay keen and inquisitive. I know it's the educator in me, I can't help it. Uh, and I want them to have a great time at the end. Um, I once did uh, a game with two games with my other friend, Chris. So I, I once, I met him at a game store because I put up an advertisement that said, historian looking for gamer interested in serious military history. And he just answered. And, and so he and I have been playing for 30 years together and he and I played, uh, the breakout at Normandy, and we played uh, Operation Market Garden, keeping journals. So you wrote your journal account of what you thought was going on, of what your plans were, of what your feelings were as things transpired and the shock or your, or your temporary glee at whatever thing was transpiring. And we did that so when it was your not your turn, you're watching the other guy, but you're creating impressions. We end up with notebook. And then when we're done, we swap notebooks to see what the other person, and then we compared them. It was such a cool experience. And I wish I could get more of my friends to have the commitment that Chris did, not only to play the game. For example, I was Americans. I could not break out. I had the historical timeline next to me because you have to. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, this is what I got to do. I got to get down to Upper Rancher. I got to do this. I got to do that. And he, I couldn't do anything. And we were playing uh, the longest day, Avalon Hills game from back in the day, which was considered 
one of the most complex and accurate sims of, of its era. I still have it of that period. And I was stunned. And so it took multiple sessions to play this. So I was reading in between and going, I can't sort it out. And then I broke through. And once I broke through, and I, I'm looking from the American perspective of the beaches, I broke through and hung a left, all right? Turns out he had thrown and his diary showed that. He says, I know in the long run, I'm not gonna be able to slow the Americans down. So I'm gonna throw up everything into the front lines. No reserve, everything, because I'm gonna try to break Ed's morale as a commander and stop him from advancing. So when I got through, there was literally very little in reserve, almost nothing, and I could have just driven to Berlin. But that wargaming experience written down, it, it done with a friend over several sessions, we stopped playing that game. We've never played it since, only because the game was so perfect and what it gave both of us that we just kind of said, it'll never get better than this. And if a war game can do that for you is a tool, an entertainment tool, a friendship tool, an educational tool. Uh, but yeah, was element, was luck part of the whole thing? But it was measured because it was two six-sided dice, bell-shaped curve. It's got to be there, but because you can't get rid of luck. Long answer, but can't get rid of luck. We are sadly running out of time, but this has been fascinating. But I have one more question I want to ask before we do uh, wrap this up. Board gaming and, uh, well, board war gaming and actual war gaming, they've always struck me as two distinct things. You know, at no point would I ever open up a box from Hasbro or whatever and go, oh, yes, this is exactly what they're using at Sandhurst. So, how do they compare? in terms of what the military actually does when it comes to training its soldiers and its officers through war games, um, as opposed to what the likes of you and I would do in a living room um, on a rainy afternoon. Would you believe that there is an entire burgeoning department out at Fort Leavenworth on war gaming in the last 10 years, five years even, it has just exploded because of its value. And so the expertise of the individuals in that department, and again, my, my pal, Chris Carnes, when they, they might pull something off the shelf and look at it, but they're always going to adapt it hugely or take ideas. Chris created so many games into Iran, Korea, uh, that was Korea in uh, the 50s. Uh, we did Okinawa, we did Gettysburg, we did so many, but we made them. You took ideas, you might use the map because again, pre-made. You might use the map, you might even use the counters, but these guys in that department out there and Chris, They've all gone through it and they know the realities and they know the uncertainty. So they, they create their own game to match their own objectives and vision. But when he, Chris would start every semester with new students, he would put a 
board game right out of the box and choose very carefully which one, like Raid on St. Nazaire, because it makes students, they don't know each other, right? And you want to get them to know each other because the faster they know each other, the more they're going to cooperate, the more they're going to lean on each other, share ideas. So he would have them, somebody would be the boss, somebody you know, be the commander. He would give them objectives. He would do things and then let them interact. He was so clever. He would pick out somebody he thought was really, really special in the class. And he would give them the rule set and tell them they had to run the game. Now you think of that, and those students never let you down. They were always amazing. So he did it to get them involved with the idea that war, what wargaming can do. And most of them don't get wargaming until they reach one of the senior schools, which is sad because they should be wargaming at every level. And anybody who does it, who gets a, a good one, I mean, a really good instructor who knows what they're doing and that their sims, again, represent reality and the realities. And when I can't even tell you stuff because it's classified, but there's stuff that Chris created that resonated so well with some of our operators out there that you watch their eyes just flick open and go, oh, yeah. And so when they're showing no resistance and offering no objections, then you know you're hitting on all cylinders and you're providing a real educational opportunity. But I'm saying that they're, they're either hugely adapted or adapted based on what the schoolhouse needs are. But I play tested all of Chris's stuff for him and then I helped him during class. And it was just like sitting down to a war game that you and I would play, except it's more sophisticated. That's all, just more sophisticated using counters or blocks uh, but then again, almost everything we're talking about has that third dimensional, you get air support and you have logistics and you have, and Chris was throwing weather in. He had a whole card of like random events. And then you had, you had to see how he took the concepts around war gaming and pulled the best ones in and created this like hyper war game and watched eight people go against eight people and they would do their plannings in separate rooms and then come back and things got kind of fun though. I have to tell you a quick one minute story. Intelligence and war is everything, right? And that's the problem with war game because you can see everything and you know generally what the other person is planning. And when we played around the table, people will do their planning four feet away from you like you can't hear them, okay? <laughs> and it's like, they're gonna try to go around our right flank. Let us out here. But, Chris created a game with such energy that people were bringing baby monitors in and hiding them in the rooms. Okay. Oh, yeah. And they were putting phones and recording. They were looking through the window. We had blinds on the windows. They'd go outside around the building and they would use so they could see the other planning maps because they'd be on the the whiteboards all up there and they would see. And so when they would get into it, they would put the paper over the door window, they paint the paper over the, and they would do a, they would do a sweep of the room looking for devices because he made it so real that that little bit of an edge in Intel could give them an edge 
in the game and planning. And then you know what people did? And we should never forget this. People had fun. And it was a form of educational entertainment in the, the best use of those words. And you watch people grow, you watch people affirm. Every once in a while we get some curmudgeon and go, I don't play games. I don't just, well, that's because you don't understand them. And by the way, you're complaining because you don't play very well, but be that as it may, never had a guy who could look at the board. Boy, some of these guys, they could look at, and gals, I shouldn't say, some of these folk can look at a board and they can see the choke points. They can, it just goes bang, 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 bang. And the guys that complained were not those people. They just seemed to think it was beneath them somehow. And I said, what about Moltgate and Clausewitz and, and the fact that Wargaming is now a full department at Leavenworth. And because they were losing, they were sour about it. Well, then figure out how to win. So that's my last story that if you can create something of that entertainment and educational value, whether it's around your table or it's in a formal classroom. And I used to run Sims for my students all the time. We did Civil War, we did World War I, World War II. There's nothing that drove them to read, both for interest in it and looking for advantages than the competition aspect of war games. It brings things up. That's why sometimes I do think that we need to remind them. And when we did the World War I sim, it was such a slog. And they would create, they would pull in their resources, they would quant, they would create military units, they'd push them up to the front line and they'd be decimated. And you do that month after month after month. One of the students early on said, what do these counters represent casualty wise? And I had the numbers. And that student was a gal kept track of the deaths on her side. She was French. She was playing the French. It was a real reminder. So if you get somebody, you can trigger their thought processes like that. And I'd say wargaming can be very successful. And it, it certainly altered my life. It's interesting how your experiences there resonate with what I found on a much smaller, much more uh, basic and far more banal scale, it should be emphasized uh, within a secondary school setting, but far and away, uh, the, the certainly the top three of the lessons that I ever taught were was a lesson where we um, basically had a, a game that simulated a naval battle and you split the class down, you made one of them captain, you put you know, certain students in charge of discipline, captain has to make the final orders, they can take advice on where to fire and so on and so forth. And you build up these different roles. And uh, I, <laughs> I actually had the assistant headmaster just come and check that anarchy hadn't actually broken out in my classroom. <laughs> Such was the level of noise and shrieking from these kids kind of bellowing different orders and, and so on. Um, so it, 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 this is the important point. It's a nice one to end on that more than anything else, this is about fun and it's about enjoyment and a way of engaging people in a period through that enjoyment. I think you've demonstrated that beautifully. Well, I appreciate so, that. I had, uh, before, I just have to throw this in. So when you want your kids to understand, you know, your students to understand history, what is history itself, right? That's a very complex question. So I did it through a, I set up the battle of, you'll love this, the battle of Salamanca 
with my friend and I had painted these six millimeter miniatures. So we set it up and everybody got a command. A whole class had a command. So I've got like 25 people around this table and everybody had a command and I taught them basic set of rules and they played for like two days. And we had an outcome. But while everybody's playing because of the experience I had with Chris, I was having them write their little like brigade level histories while it was going on. And then when it was over, you got together with your side and you created the British history of Salamanca and then the French history of Salamanca. But what we did, I'll never forget this. Gal was brilliant. She was tough as nails. She ran the French and the French won at Salamanca. And then I handed the British histories to the French and the French as winners got to create the final compiled history of the Battle of Salamanca. And of course they cherry picked their own stuff that, you know, huzzahed themselves. And then they cherry picked trying to be fair to the Brits, anything that praised the French got into the history. Anything that showed any, uh, anything disparate or negative about the French, they ignored it. And then, you, then I printed them up, everybody got their own Battle of Salamanca history and I passed them out. And the French were just, you know, vest pop and happy. And the Brits, the students were go, hey, that's not true. That's not how it happened. And then we had a whole discussion about how history is from the perception of the individuals who compiles history, what's their, their purpose in compiling it. And from that moment on, they trusted no one, which was the lesson but you did it through a war game and they never forgot that this gal had compiled in things that made her look like a genius and ignored the contributions of others. Even people on her own side go, I did that flank attack. He didn't even mention me. You know, it was, it was a wonderful exercise. It was the most fun things I did, but I had folk come around because the kids would get pretty, you know, the kids, these, you know, these students would get, pretty excited and it was hard to express to many people why a war game was valid. How does, how is that an education? It's a toy. No, it's not a toy. It's a, it's a game. Well, sort of. So I wanted to share the Battle of Salamanca with you as a final uh, reminder. I love it. I absolutely love it. And if ever you wonder why it's important to question official accounts and records and why it's important to study both perspectives as opposed to just fixating on one there is your answer because there is how propaganda is born people ed this has been a joy they're always a joy uh, you'll be coming back at some point uh, in <laughs> probably not too distant future what are you working on now? I believe All for the King Shilling is out in paperback form from Oklahoma, am I right? Yes, second edition. Uh, I've got four other uh, works out there, it's chapters and books. Uh, what I'm currently working on is Napoleon. Uh, his suicide attempts, I'm delving into all the detail and the context and uh, probably end up using the, uh, what, those five psychologists came up for came up with which was their their look at 
uh, how those attempts, which would be called caused by narcissistic injury, how they seem to uh, synchronize with the narcissistic personality disorder that Napoleon likely had and his inability to deal with defeat, his inability to deal with something that destroys his worldview as this omnipotent, omniscient individual. So that's what I'm working on. And if you want to know the research behind that, because that is not an opinion, that is a very, very carefully analysed thing, um, then you will want to get your hands on a copy of The Sword and the Spirit, uh, published by Hellion, edited by me, so sorry, um, but it is the first uh, chapter in that book, and it is an exceptional piece. Uh, so before you start shooting it down with your opinions on actually no, Napoleon wasn't a narcissist. Well, go and read the research because it is an absolute eye-opener. Ed, it's, it's been... It's not me. I didn't come up with the assessment because I'm a rank amateur. These are five psychologists. And I had a super editor who made it all smoothly come out. So thank you, Zach, on every level. Oh, no, your editor was rubbish, but we'll just quietly gloss <laughs> over that. Ed, it's been a joy. Thank you ever so much. Thank you, Bill. Before you go, folks, all the usual things. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters. It is their support that keeps this podcast going. If you're interested in contributing to the show, you can find out more from the link in the description. Prices start from £1 a month, and you get all kinds of perks from discount codes on um, pen and sword books, which means you actually quite rapidly end up regaining some of the money that you invest in the show, all the way through to voting rights, shout-outs in episodes, and even one-to-one meetings with me. If a regular subscription isn't your thing, which believe me I completely understand, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the description. And all the money gets reinvested into producing more content further down the line, and I have a big project in mind involving footage from battlefields that could potentially be uh, a really engaging, exciting project if I can bring the money together to make it happen. A big thank you as ever to all of my Patreon supporters and shout outs to my uh, Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell, my Marshall patrons, Matt Bone and Marcus Cribb, my Commander patrons, John Haynes, Gur Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, and Michael Guest, my mentioned in dispatches plus patron Noah Fink, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell Grieve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coathlin, Mark Trowbridge, and Stephen Coulson. The Napoleon Assist will be back very soon. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.